Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. Happy 2018, everybody. Uh, We're going to start off this new year by going all the way back and looking again at the birth of e-commerce. As I've said before, it always frustrates me that when people think of e-commerce now, they basically think of Amazon, and that's the whole story. Maybe people remember there were a bunch of dot-coms like pets.com and such, but then they all went belly up, so I guess it's Amazon and that's it, right? Well, of course, that's not true because there was really nothing as wide open and Wild West-like as e-commerce was at the very beginning of the web. Back then, no one knew what worked, and a whole bunch of startups that history tends to forget took a lot of big swings at trying to solve the problem. And one of those startups was called Open Market. One of the things you always hear in tech is that old saw that when there's a gold rush, the easiest way to make money is by selling people shovels. And that's exactly what Open Market essentially tried to do. Instead of trying to sell something specific like books or pet food, Open Market basically tried to sell everyone the tools that would allow people to sell something online. The original concept for Open Market was an online mall, but this evolved into creating the software and infrastructure for other online retailers to blossom, all using Open Market system. And honestly, if you were an investor in the mid-90s looking to back in ultimate e-commerce winner, who do you think you would have put your money on? A site that just wanted to sell books or an entire company that was looking to empower all of the millions of e-commerce players that seemed likely to come to the market? On the strength of this notion, as I mentioned in a minute, I'm pretty sure that Open Market was the second web company to IPO to a billion-dollar valuation, after Netscape, of course. And so today, we're going to hear that story. We're going to talk to Jeff Buskang, one of Open Market's earliest executives, to try to get the story of early e-commerce and the story of the company that was Open Market. Jeff Buskang, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. My pleasure. Well, I want to weave your uh, your career story into this into this interview, but could we start before we bring you into it? Um, recount for us how Open Market got started. I know that it got started before you joined up, um, but basically, uh, who were the guys that founded it? What was the idea, and 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 when did it get started? Sure. The company was started in 1994 by an MIT professor named David Gifford. David had invented many of the original IP, intellectual property, around secure internet commerce, what we know today, and I'm sure we'll come back to that. So David was an MIT professor. He came up with the idea. He reached out to a number of venture capitalists, and one of them, a firm named Greylock, connected him to a local entrepreneur who was a business executive named Shakar Ghosh. Shakar was a former HBS, Harvard Business School graduate, uh, uh, BCG alumni, had uh, just come off a successful startup of his own and was looking for his next thing. And uh, the Greylock folks put the two of them together, and in 1994, they started the company. And the original vision was very broad. It was to create an, an open marketplace, open market, out of the internet and to 
allow for the infrastructure required to make the Internet a secure business environment. So, again, I want to underline this is what, like February of 94, early 94 at least. So this is before a full year before the Netscape IPO. This is before Amazon even launches or anything like that. Um, so is it a is it a case of as the Internet starts to as the Web itself starts to become mainstream? Is it well? what are we going to do with this? Let's see if we can sell stuff online. Is it just kind of groping around in the dark at first? There was definitely a lot of groping around in the dark. I joined after the Series A. The company was about 30 people at the time. And I remember that out of the 30 people, we were 25 or so engineers working on a dozen products. I mean, there was a really broad range of things. It was the land grab of the early, early Internet days. So we had a browser product, we had a web server product, we had a secure web server product, we had a shopping cart product, we had an e-commerce platform. It was a very dramatically um, intensive experimentation era. Well, you you mentioned also that uh, maybe the original idea was to just be an online shopping mall, and I'm I'm always sort of, you know, speaking of <laughs> groping around in the dark to see what works, the idea that a lot of early web things were bringing these metaphors from the real world into a, a virtual world. So was that was that the original idea? Let's just set up some sort of framework where people can do business, and then we'll take a cut, that sort of thing. That's right. The original one of the original visions was an online shopping mall where we would go to banks and telecoms companies. And, and back then, there was no wireless carriers. So the telecom companies were extremely powerful and just coming off of their monopolies. And the banks were extremely powerful. And each of them had all the merchant relationships. And so the thinking was, let's build an online marketplace, an online mall. We'll sell it to banks and service providers like telecoms, and then all the merchants will subscribe to those services, they'll build online storefronts, and then they'll pay us a cut of the action. And I read that there was also, at least early on, an idea that consumers would also maybe pay a membership fee for online shopping and things like that, too? We experimented with a lot of different ideas Mm. and business models, but yes, one of them was that, and since you mentioned it, there was no... Netscape was not a prevalent browser at that time. Microsoft hadn't yet come up with its browser. And so we thought there's some, because you needed a browser to interact with the server. And so maybe we should provide the browser software and there'd be some fee that we could pay consumers to enable the secure transactions. Because to do secure transactions, you needed an SSL connection between the server and the browser using the various protocols that were just becoming available at the time. And that piece of software, we thought, could be also an opportunity to make some money off consumers. Well, let's talk about let's. You mentioned SSL. Let's talk about again these being very early days. I remember that there was like just this whole uh, competing systems, like Visa and and Microsoft. I think had one approach at some point, and then like Mastercard had a separate one, and then there was like a a Netscape and IBM combination and things like that. So. Um, very early days, was it also sort of navigating what sort of system would be become the, the, the prominent one? Yes. It was, a, it was an era of standardization. Mm-hmm. It was so new that there were a lot of competing standards, and there were all these consortiums floating around. 
the media companies created consortiums, the newspapers, the banks created consortiums, the telecoms companies created consortiums. Everybody was running around trying to define the plumbing. It reminds a lot of what's happening now in the blockchain, mm-hmm. which is a whole other conversation we could have. But sure. if you think about a, a lot of the efforts that are going on right now in smart contracts and Ethereum and forks and debating what's the right protocol and what's the right transaction speed and what's the right way to handle errors. These are all things that had to be figured out in the early internet era of the mid-90s. And at Open Market, we were right in the middle of all of that and trying to find a way to make money off of it by selling commercial software. Uh, well, one thing regular listeners will know, I've, I've said several times on this show that um, people think things like, obviously the blockchain is new, but one of the first ideas that people had when the web came around was this idea of digital currency. Um, so also in this environment in 94, there's, I remember, Cybercash, First Virtual. So there was, like, literally, <laughs> if the first idea on the web was to publish and the second was to sell, the third was probably this idea of enabling commerce in a more frictionless way, in a more efficient way. That's right. DigiCash was founded in 1989. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And Cybercash, I don't remember exactly, but I, I think it was founded around this same time period in the early 90s. So this this notion was very um, – a lot of the academics out of MIT and Stanford were working on this very idea, and, um, and we were trying to build the software that enabled it. And so we actually partnered with some of these companies to try to run some experiments where people could buy an article of the Wall Street Journal, who was one of our early customers, for a mere 99 cents. Mm, right, the, the, the micropayment thing that everyone's still chasing. Yep. Yep, yep. All right, so I think it's probably about time to bring you into this. Um, so I read a little bit uh, articles from around the time, and um, I, think the, I think the timeline is is that initial sort of um, online mall idea was sort of scrapped, and, and the original investment, they were running out of cash, and so... They're starting to try to come up with a try to pivot to a new business plan, and I, I believe around '95 that's when you start to come into the picture. I yeah, I joined in the spring of '95. Uh, as I said at the time, it was 30 employees, mm-hmm. and it's funny. I, and looking back in retrospect, I don't think of it as what we were doing was pivoting, as more trying to winnow down ideas. Mm-hmm. You know, we had so many ideas and so many products, and eventually we focused in on one single product and one single idea, which was to build the large enterprise software platform that would allow us allow everyone to conduct business securely on the Internet. And so a complete order management, shopping cart, transaction, secure payment platform that would allow large retailers and small merchants to do secure commerce online. And that, that, that was... Sorry, that was the vision behind our IPO, which we executed in uh, in the spring of 1996. Well, before we get to that, um, what what was your background? I think that you you're, you're almost fresh out of school at this point. You might have done some consulting before you join up, but um, what what was your background? That's right. Briefly, I was a computer science undergrad, worked as a management consultant for a couple of years at the Boston Consulting Group, went back to Harvard for business school, and then this was my first job right out of business school. So I was. 26 years old and fresh out, fresh out of business school with pretty much zero experience. <laughs> well, but no one has any experience with doing what you're trying to do, so that probably didn't matter in the end. 
Exactly, exactly. So, um, I don't know, first day you show up, like, uh, uh, first week, first month, what are, you, what are your marching orders? What, are you, what is your first project? So, at the time, I was hired as a product manager and in a company where there were, like, a dozen products, as I said before, but I was one of only two product managers. We had to very quickly rationalize what the heck we were going to build. When the company was all engineering and when the world was our oyster, we ran a lot of experiments, as I said, but so many other companies were jumping into the space and getting venture financing and carving out different parts of the ecosystem. We had to very quickly decide, what are we going to focus on? And how do we build a product that customers are actually going to buy? So my first effort was around focus, and my second effort was around you know, product management and driving priorities and requirements in the product roadmap to to meet the needs of customers in a market that didn't exist. So we had to really quickly talk to customers and figure out what they wanted and try to envision what we could build to meet their needs. And and who are these customers? Again, keeping in mind that this is 95 and uh, basically no one has a website, <laughs> some of the people you're talking to. So um, who are you talking to and, and what do they want to do? It was the biggest um, platforms at the time so companies like Time Warner, Wall Street Journal, the, all the big media companies. AOL at the time was moving towards the Internet, and they were an emerging media company. Lycos was a, a, a new media company. So it was those types of companies that were directly building um, transaction capabilities and wanting to sell things, and then also the service providers, the big banks and the telcos that I mentioned earlier. So all the big banks and, and telcos like AT&T and others. Um, so essentially you create, uh, you're creating essentially commerce platforms for like Pathfinder. If Pathfinder wants to also have e-commerce alongside ads in terms of revenue, you're doing that for them. And, and for the banks, what are you specifically doing? Are you, are you allowing them to do banking transactions or? Yeah. So for Time Warner Pathfinder, since you mentioned Pathfinder, that was their internet content initiative. These were all, and Wall Street Journal and others, these were all big media companies that were trying to sell subscriptions online. Ah, right. And and also sell some goods and services, but they were mainly trying to figure out a way to digitize their content and still monetize it. So we we built an e-commerce platform that allowed for content management and subscription services. Um, I'll tell you a quick funny story about that, and then I'll answer your question about the bank. Yeah, please. Time Time Warner at the time the executive who ran the business was a gentleman named Paul Sagan. Paul Sagan later became the CEO of Akamai and a very successful executive over a dozen years. At the time, he was a a new media executive running the Pathfinder Initiative, and I didn't know him at the time. I was sent down to to meet with him and his team to help explain to them why it it would take four weeks for us to move a piece of HTML text from one side of the page to the other side of the page <laughs> because our system was so rigid and WYSIWYG tools and whatnot were just not available at the time and everything was so hard-coded that we literally could not make any changes to these HTML templates without getting core engineering involved and then QA and then release cycles. I mean, it's ridiculous at the time with the cloud. Uh, nowadays, it, it sounds absurd, but at the time we had to literally ship them golden copies of software in CDs. On and discs, yeah. On di- you know, CD discs come to their office and 
install those, that, that system. And so we had this long installation procedure and everything else. And so literally every time they would want to make what seemed to be a very simple change, and he's thinking like a media executive trying to change the layout of a page, and I'm trying to explain to him <laughs> software, you know, perpetual software and, and transaction system release schedules 101. It was a, a bit of an impedance mismatch. <laughs> Yeah, that, well, that's again. You, you, it's it's the metaphors that they understand and trying to get them into this new, into this new paradigm. Yeah, exactly. I, I, by the way, I still have on my desk, and I can send it to you if it's of any interest. A picture of it, a copy of the software that we shipped to yeah. people like them. It's called. It was called Transact. Yeah, the product name, and. Uh, yeah, send that anyway, over. I'll, I, I, uh, yeah. If if it's something I can share, I'll put it on the website, and, and uh, there will be a link in the show notes. Um, but you mentioned Transact, and so like Transact becomes the main all-encompassing product. Yes, that became the main product that we went public. You know, we moved forward with and, and mm-hmm. went public on. And it's an end-to-end solution. So again, if I'm Time Warner, I, it's a whole platform. You you handle the upfront, you handle the the back end, you handle the the, the transactions, the the settling of funds, and that sort of. It's the whole shebang. Exactly. Um, we, one thing that we haven't talked about um, before we get into things like you know IPOing and becoming a company in the in the bubble and all that stuff. Uh, I've asked a bunch of people about this. What was your memory in terms of? Uh, a consumer and the uptake of the consumer in terms of being willing to buy online? Was there a lot of reticence at the beginning? Was there a lot of educating consumers that needed to be done? Yeah, huge amount of reticence, a lot of conversation about will consumers ever type in their credit cards online? Mm -hmm. And is it possible that that could be a secure process that consumers would trust? And many people thought it would never be. Mm -hmm. And it took a while for consumers to feel comfortable doing that. Yeah, I saw a quote where someone, uh, one of your executives, was bemoaning the fact that consumer sales on the web weren't materializing as quickly as you had hoped for. Do you have any sort of memory of that? Was there a period of time, maybe like 98, 99, when all of a sudden, okay, we've got traction here in terms of people feeling confident uh, buying online? I would say... When the IPOs started to happen and the bubble started to get inflated, one of the benefits, and again, we see this in many other bubbles like crypto and and others, is that everybody started to talk about it. And so it became mainstream. And suddenly everybody was comfortable buying on the web because it was such a mainstream thing. And the brands that were doing it seemed like trusted brands. So if AT&T allows you to buy stuff on the web or if, Citibank is allowing you to buy stuff on the web, it must be okay. And then in just a few short years, uh, eBay comes along and people are willing to buy and sell from strangers. So it's a, it takes a while, but right. once, once you hit that upward slope, it's maybe rapid, yeah. So exactly. uh, uh, Gary Eichhorn is brought in to be the CEO, right? Yeah, Gary was uh, a well-regarded executive coming out of HP, at the time, HP was viewed to be one of the best managed companies in the world. And at the time, Gary was a, a CEO successor candidate and a rising up-and-comer in his early 40s. And it was a huge coup when we were able to hire him to help lead the company going forward. I remember one of our 
investors, I think the Greylock board member said, uh, declared to his partners, we've, we've found our Jim Barksdale, mm-hmm. who was famously the CEO of Netscape that they pulled out of FedEx maybe six months or 12 months earlier and helped um, Netscape go public. And so we were thrilled to get Gary on board, and Gary walked into this company, which he thought he was walking into a, a, a company that was going to go public in six, nine months and on a rocket ship and a well-managed um, professional company, and he realized it was complete chaos, a complete mess, <laughs> and it was not... It was much much rawer material than he than he realized and appreciated, and he had a lot of a lot of heavy lifting to do to get us organized to get ready to go public. So you know one of the one of the things that it, it, people remember historically is this notion of companies being able to go public, you know, six months after being formed or something like that. You guys are you're really early, way before what I would even consider the bubble. It's uh, your IPO is May of '96. What what do you remember in terms of that? In terms of what? what wall street was looking for what by may of 96 because this is like the second wave when like yahoo and excite and people like that are going public what what was required uh to go public did you have to show sales growth or was it all just about like the potential of the market that sort of thing so just to give you a perspective we had when we filed the s1 in early 1996, we completed our 1995 financials. We had $1.8 million of revenue, mm-hmm. and none of it was product revenue. Most of it was professional services revenue because we hadn't yet fully shipped the product. Transact 1.0 was not shipping until May of 1996. In fact, I remember Gary cornering me and asking me, when will you ship this product? Because mm-hmm. we can't go public unless we have a shipping product, and if you're going to be delayed, then we we're going to delay the IPO. So it was uh, very high stakes, high pressure. But to answer your question, it was very much about vision and big market vision and quality of team. The thing that really, I think, inspired our public market investors was that we had this amazing senior management team. I remember Gary flashing a slide up, one of his first or second slides in the IPO Roadshow was the number of years of experience that each of the senior executives had at the time, he recruited a, a terrific management team, and he made a, would have a standard joke in the IPO Roadshow presentation that's where he said, you know, this is not the ages of our executive team. These are their years of experience, because a lot of companies were rushing to go public with 25-year-olds running the company who had no idea how to um, operate and, and execute a, a, an IPO, never mind a public company. So that was, uh, I think, something that... that investors really resonated with massive opportunity a lot of promise good logic to the vision and the strategy and a, a really high quality management team the um your ipo uh is may of 96 like i said and um i think you have a market cap of 1.2 billion uh on that first day which actually i think i'm gonna have to go back and look at look at some numbers here but you might be the first uh dot-com company after netscape to to ipo uh over a billion um so that allows you uh, what <laughs> essentially like um <clears throat> like you said you're still building out the product but um does that or do you do like other people do an IPO and and that allows you to start acquiring companies like what is what does the IPO do for you in 96 We raised 76 million dollars in the IPO so as you point out it was a pretty good sized IPO at that time even in today's numbers. It's a reasonable sized IPO 20 years later, and it allowed us to have a ton of capital to 
build the team out more fully to raise um, uh, the, uh, you know, we ended up hiring something on the order of 300, 400 people and were able to uh, achieve market leadership globally. We very quickly went global. So we hired a lot of salespeople. We built out an international team in Europe and in Asia because the internet was going global very quickly and companies were looking for service providers all over the world. And it allowed us to declare market leadership such that if you were a company considering, if you were a business considering getting onto the web, you heard about open market because we were the first out in front and we, Netscape was positioned as the consumer company and we were positioned as the business company. Well, but Netscape's also um, trying to pivot, <laughs> there's that word again, to to serving um, corporations and, and actually uh, producing server software and things like that. So are you competing with them as well? Yes, for that part of their business. On the browser side, they were competing with Microsoft. Right. When Microsoft jumped into Internet Explorer, and on the server side, we were competing with them. And our pitch to companies was that we were the best focused uh, business partner because that's all we cared about was the enterprise customer. And so we, we we sort of had the market all to ourselves for a few years. We were the market share leading company in e-commerce for, I think it was 96, 97, 98, mm-hmm. or maybe it was 95, 96, 97, something like that, for three or four years. And, um, and then we lost it, which is a whole other story. But anyway, for a few years, we had a pretty open playing field, and our revenue went from... 1.8 million to 22.5 million to over 60 million dollars in just uh, those two years, which is pretty extraordinary for an enterprise software company. A SaaS company would never see that growth, mm-hmm. but we were we were able to achieve that growth because we were a perpetual license company, which was the model back then. So you could you could 10x a company in revenue as an enterprise software company. Well, uh, why do you uh, lose that that? Uh ownership of the market is it because by 98 99 i feel like there was a plethora of people doing similar things like even yahoo has yahoo stores and things like that is that sort of the thing like it just becomes a really crowded uh marketplace it just got really crowded the capital markets were wide open so anybody could raise money at very um, cheap prices and everybody saw the same opportunity we saw and so all sorts of companies popped up vignette broad vision inner shop you mentioned Yahoo. There were just a ton of companies. These are names that people may not remember anymore, but these were sort of the the, the big um, competitors of that era. And then the big companies like IBM and and Microsoft also got into the business. So it got very very crowded by the late nineties. So um, tell me, tell me, <laughs> we're we're going to kind of yada yada the last part of this here. But so through the the dot com period. Um, and into the dot-com busting, what, what, is, what is the story of open market and, and ultimately um, what happened to it? So we did a number of acquisitions. As you point out, when you have a currency, you can now acquire companies. We had a, a good performance in the fundamentals of the business, and I like to say grew into our valuation. We had a peak valuation of $2.5 billion in early 2000, revenue of about $100 million, crowded market, but still good leadership, good position. And then the dot-com bubble burst, as you point out, and the customer base disappeared. Uh, All of our customers, many of our customers were new companies that were building storefronts and, you know, the Amazons of the world that survived for every one of them. There were 99 
companies that were dot-coms that wanted to build the Amazon of X retail category, and then a bunch of retailers who put all their plans on hold. Once the market crashed, e-commerce suddenly became nice to have, no longer must-have, and they pushed it all off. And so our, our revenue completely collapsed. I left the company just before all that happened in January of 2000, so I didn't I didn't see the um, the downturn, um, the dramatic downturn of mid late 2000 and 2001. But the company eventually uh, stock plummeted, revenue uh, plummeted, and the company eventually was acquired by uh, a, a consolidating software company for I can't remember the exact number. You may have it on on your in front of you, something like 50 million dollars. Right. Right. I actually don't have the exact number, but so the, the bottom line is, is all those dot uh, com e-commerce plays, the pets dot coms of the world. Um, you guys do well for several years there, basically uh, helping them, <laughs> helping them do their thing, and then suddenly they're, overnight they're gone, and and basically that's the entire business. Exactly. Um, is it so? I, I, like you said, you left, but thinking of how commerce on the web uh, works now and worked by the time things came back in the web 2.0 era. Uh, was it a, a case of eventually providing commerce tools was a commodity? Like by the time web 2.0 comes along, there's so many things that you can just off the shelf use to build a, a business. Is Was that what happened to commerce that by the time the, the web comes back, you don't need a company like Open Market to, to create a commerce company? No. In fact, the ashes, from the ashes of Open Market and other companies like it, mm -hmm. we've seen Shopify explode and is now a $9 billion right. company. We've seen Demandware explode, founded by the former head of Intershop, which was a competitor of ours, and that became a 2 or $3 billion company before it was acquired by Salesforce. So uh, Magento has exploded as a platform that eBay eventually acquired and then spun out. And so there's there's been a ton of next generation, really interesting and valuable e-commerce platforms. Um, open Market, uh, you're you're still on the East Coast, and Open Market was an East Coast company. <laughs> I, I just curious um, in terms of the the dot com era. What can you tell me about being an East Coast company instead of being out in Silicon Valley? Was it a hindrance? Was Did you feel like you had a different culture than the West Coast? During the mid-90s, it was not obvious that Silicon Valley was going to be 10x Boston the way it is today. And at the time, I don't know, it probably wasn't 50-50, but it was maybe 55-45, 60-40. It was pretty close. And we certainly... Uh, use that to the hilt and talking about you know the kind of company we were and comparing ourselves to Netscape and you know they were the flashy consumer company and we're the serious business company and we were the grown-ups and a lot of companies out on the West Coast were run by kids so there was there was a little bit of that we were probably more buttoned up and more conservative than many of the companies out west and that was because our customer base wanted that when you walk into the banks and the telcos that's what they wanted to see. And people, obviously, everyone talks about a, a PayPal mafia, but I've seen a couple people now mention the, a notion of an open market mafia that so many people 
um, came out of that company, you among them, um, th- that went on to do other things like, you know, found Skyhook Wireless, uh, people like Constant Contact, things like that. Um, would you say that it was uh, a similar a similar uh, brain trust of, of really talented people that, that went on to great careers? I, I don't know if I can compare it to the PayPal Mafia. That, that group is so extraordinary. Mm-hmm. But we do have an open market mafia, and many of the people in that group have done really interesting things. You, you mentioned a few, Gail Goodman, who took constant contact from nothing to a, a public company that later sold for a billion dollars, and um, Shikhar Ghosh went on to be uh, founder of another company and then an HBS professor. And uh, there, 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 I think at last count there were 15 or 20 CEOs that can trace their roots to open market CEOs and founders in the Boston area. So for the Boston community, open market was a huge talent magnet in the mid-90s. It was the leading internet company at a time when the internet was the thing that a lot of the very talented wanted to participate in. And so we had an amazing um, talent pool, and those people have gone off to do really interesting things, and it's been fun to get together. We do reunions. or had For many years, we, we had reunions every year around Thanksgiving. They petered out a little bit 20 years later, but uh, for 10, 15 years, there were, uh, every year we'd all get together and just chat, and it was great fun. And to this day, I still work with and interact frequently with many of the, my open market colleagues. Um, and we should mention that um, when you left Open Market, uh, you were you founded You Promise, uh, which was also very successful uh, in the early two thousands, um, and still around, very successful today still. Um, but um, I think maybe by like two thousand three, two thousand four, you joined Flybridge at where you are today. Yeah, I co-founded Flybridge in in early two thousand and three, and we're an early stage venture capital firm. So I made the the conversion from. Uh, an entrepreneur to, to becoming a VC in in tandem with a couple friends of mine who were previously VCs, one of whom was at Greylock, and uh, both of my companies were backed by Greylock, and so it was uh, a very natural transition for me to make. So um, I, I like to end with asking people what they're um, excited about uh, these days, and I, I'm not asking you specifically, like you know, what what things you're excited about investing in. But you know, we have mentioned crypto and things like that. Um, I'm wondering if um, some of the things that you saw at at open market might be some of the things that that you see out there that are exciting today. Yeah, absolutely. I've been spending a lot of time in crypto and blockchain. I've made a couple investments in that space and hope to make more. I think the world of AI and machine learning is very interesting, and at Flybridge we've done a lot in that area. And the intersection of open source with crypto is very interesting. We were the Series A investors in MongoDB, which is one of the more successful open source enterprise software companies out there that recently went public. So lots of lots of exciting things in that area. And then the other final thing I'll mention is future of work. One of my Newer Partners was one of the founding team members at WeWork, and he's very excited, and we're all very excited about how work is changing and how millennials and others are reimagining um, work and life and purpose. And so we've made a number of investments in that area as well. So, yeah, a lot, lot, there's no shortage of innovation and exciting things going on right now, 20 years later after the Internet first started to blossom. Final question, and it might be a bit of an unfair one, but uh, seeing as how you know you you join uh, in '95, so you're at the very beginning of commerce on the web and e-commerce. If you if I if I twisted your arm and made you compare 
where crypto is today to where uh, e-commerce started out. <laughs> where are we? Are we in 95 in terms of, of where crypto is? Or are we beyond that? Or where do you think we are? Yeah, I would say it feels like 1995, maybe 1996. It still feels incredibly early, incredibly experimental, super promising, a lot of excitement, but crazy, crazy early still. I mean, just the fundamental infrastructure and plumbing has so much friction around it. If, if you and I were to get excited about one particular cryptocurrency or, or project, for example, we have no way of investing in that project unless we jump through a tremendous amount of hoops yeah. and expose our capital in very insecure, <laughs> in a very insecure way in some foreign entity that we have no control over uh, so, and has no regulatory framework surrounding it. So, you know, the institutional players haven't even stepped in. So it's very, very early still. Well, maybe the theme then is uh, feeling around in the dark still to, to find out what works, like we talked about at the beginning. Um, That's right. Uh, Jeff Busgang, thanks for thanks for coming on the show, uh, remembering that, and um, uh, bringing, bringing open market out of the memory hole of history as, as a real pioneer in commerce. Thank you. Yeah, no, it's super fun. You know, one, one side note we didn't mention, but a historical note, and we had these original patents I mentioned at the beginning, and mm -hmm. Amazon eventually paid us $40 million for licenses and rights to those patents. So whatever Professor MIT professor David Gifford did in 1993 and 1994 ended up being pretty fundamental to the world of e-commerce. Wow, I, never, I have never heard that story. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, Amazon was felt so um, vulnerable because the patents were so fundamental to what they do that they would then seem like a lot of money and now seems like a, a pittance uh, to license them. Well, uh, thanks for that, and, and thanks again for talking to us, Jeff. Pleasure. If this is the first time you're listening to this podcast, please subscribe to us on your podcast app of choice. There's plenty more great internet history where that came from. And if you're a longtime listener, then you know what to do to help us out. Rate and review us on iTunes. Because iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more great reviews we get, the more people will discover us. As always, there's more info on our website, www.internethistorypodcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at NetHistoryPod, and my personal Twitter is at BrianMCC. Thanks for listening.